Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. We're in Judges 10. Open or click your Bibles there. I'd tell you the page number. For, for me, it's just page one. That's where we're at. Um, we are picking up where we left off, and we just finished kind of the three-chapter series on Gideon. So we're moving on to other judges tonight. And um, we're seeing a series of judges that are, are, are really short, and in the middle of it is Jephthah, who, who is the one famous for making the vow where he's going to give his daughter. So that's where we're at tonight, the joy of judges. Um, so we're going to move through some chapters, and we're starting in Judges 10, and I'm just going to dig right in. Let's go. Verse 1, after Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua. Sounds like a Disney movie. And the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he dwelt in Shamir in the mountains of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. And he died and was buried in Shamir. That's all we get on judge number six, Tola. Now you say, wait a second, isn't this judge number seven? And I would say, it all depends on how you count the judges. I'm not counting Jotham as a judge because he never really ruled over Israel. He just came and gave that prophecy when Abimelech was being a fake judge, right? So he's not really fitting into that role where he rules over him. Um, and, and as with almost any 12 count in the Bible, there's always something where it's like, well, does Judas really count as one of the 12 disciples or how does that work? There's always a little bit, are there really 12 tribes because Joseph got to split into two and the Levites didn't get land and how does that work? So it's kind of like that. Tola, the thing that's significant about Tola is his name. In the Hebrew, his name means, anybody know? Worm. So he was named Worm. Uh, apparently, he was either had really nasty parents or he was some sort of slave. And he was, he was called that because he was ruled over by someone who had no regard for him whatsoever. So... Tola, worm, is the son of Pua, which means splendid, which is the son of Dodo, which means beloved, or an extinct bird, one of the two. Um, but you can see the digression in the names. Generationally, what's happening to Israel here is we're, we're moving in that direction. The other thing that's notable about Tola is that we get his name and we get that he arose, which implies that he was some sort of military leader, but we get no account of the military leadership. So it's not that there wasn't an account. It's that as Samuel is assembling these scrolls and putting this book together, he's trying to show how Israel digressed. And there's nothing of note to tell us about this particular judge because, frankly, he's ruling maybe more like a secular judge would. It's not that he's doing things in God's name. There's no implication that the Spirit of God is with him. It doesn't necessarily um, uh, say that God raised him up. It just says that he arose 
um, and that he judged Israel or carried out the law of God for Israel as the judge of that nation. 23 years, though, is a pretty long season of peace. We get that. We also get that Issachar now has a judge, so some of the tribes get judges representing them in this season. Some of them don't, um, and we get that. Then we get to the seventh judge, Jair, uh, or Ya'er is, I think, what it means. It means he enlightens in the Hebrew. So verse 3, after him rose Jair, Ya'er. You're not supposed to pronounce the J with the J, so that's just Minnesota accent. Um, Ya'er, a Gileadite. He judged Israel 22 years. And now he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 towns, which they called Havoth Ya'er to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Ya'er died, and he was buried in Cammon. So he's not the Messiah because he died. And that's, we see that at the end of a lot of these judges. Um, both of them rule over a seasons of peace. I think it's important to note when we're getting to this point in Judges, chapter 10 is setting the stage for King David. And we're seeing that these people come and go. It, there's kind of this preservation of the moral history of Israel, but we can see their moral compass is at a flat line right now. There's nothing happening for God. And so when we get two judges with that big of a season of time, uh, 22 years and 23 years, that's like a generation plus that just kind of happens, right? And God isn't doing much. There's no miracles. There's no Gideon taking on the Midians, Midianites, none, none of that. So we're getting what we need in these stories, and there's just nothing of note with both of these judges, even though they're there for a long time. So here's what you can pull out of Yair. 30 children either means one of two things. Super active wife that's making triplets and quadruplets, or we've got ourselves a polygamist. And so Israel's descending even further into just accepting this sin as part of their day-to-day life. Uh, no matter how successful the judge is, if they're not living according to God's law, they're not called by God, you're just in a situation. Gilead is actually east of the Jordan in Manasseh um, and uh, not necessarily in the promised land. So the donkey that's in there, the list that they're riding around on donkeys, I think what we need to know or note about the donkey piece is that this in the ancient world is a way to show princely rulership. Because donkeys aren't as strong as oxen. They don't travel as long or far as camel. And they're not necessarily good for eating. So the only reason you really have a donkey is if you're too poor to get an oxen to do your farm labor with, or if you're just trying to be opulent and you ride. It's like having a Rolls Royce. So you got the donkey. They're not really war animals or anything like that. They're just kind of, and in this passage... It's a way to display wealth and show off how wealthy you are. You're wealthy enough to feed an animal that you don't need. So then the next section starts, and we continue to get this context that's happening in here. Verse 6, Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, which implies that for 50 years they've been pretty, pretty neutral. Like they're not doing anything all that horrible other than polygamy, and they're getting used to some of these things. Um, but they're doing evil in the sight of the Lord, and it's defined here as, and served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. Okay, that's a different level of sin that we really haven't seen, that they're actively serving these other gods. And it's not just any gods, it's the Baals and the Ashtaroths. So we're talking human sacrifice, we're talking orgy rituals, we're talking stuff that's just really contrasting the law of God. But then look at this, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, 
the gods of the people of Ammon, it just keeps going. And the gods of the Philistines, they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So they'll worship anything but Yahweh. And that's where we're at with Israel right now. It's not even a debate between the two. They're just going to worship anything. Uh, so we see this, the Baals are, are apparently not enough on their own. They're just going to adopt every other religion they can get and worship all of them. Uh, one thing to note here is that there's a listing of seven different groups of gods. So for those of you that like the numbers in the Bible, it's almost like saying they'll worship the complete set of other gods they can get their hands on. So there's this idea that, I don't think that's a coincidence. In, in fact, where there's seven different gods that they're worshiping here, that's a great evil. In verses 11 and 12, God reminds them of seven different ways he's delivered them over time. So there's a nice parallel in this chapter if you want to note that and underline some things. So there's a complete service to other gods, a complete decadence or a complete abandon to being worshiping uh, false gods. They have the full measure of idolatry. Um, there's also a ton of linked words here, and I'm not going to go through them all, but if you want for Bible study this week, just put Deuteronomy 32 next to this passage and read Deuteronomy 32, and you're going to see a ton of links between this chapter and that chapter. Uh, they're doing exactly what God said they were going to do, right? So they're completely fulfilling the prophecies that God laid out, saying this is what's going to happen to Israel. And again, this sets up the need for King David right, is that they're reaching that season in history that God said they would get to. So they're tempted to do it. They forsake God, uh, and they, they just don't have time for God. They don't serve God, which means they're not taking care of the tabernacle. They're not doing the feasts. They're not doing the worship and the sacrifices that are there. So they're going to serve something else. This is in Deuteronomy 32, fills all that in. Like, so we should read verse 6 as, and verse 7 as though we've reached the conclusion of what was predicted back in Deuteronomy. Because we have. And, and then it said, I will be angry at you back in Deuteronomy. And that's exactly what it says in verse 7. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. Sold here in the Hebrew is being used in a figurative way. He didn't actually exchange money for these people because there's no money in heaven or you can't get to heaven with a nickel in your jeans because God don't have no slot machines. <laughs> am, am I dating with myself with that? Um, so there is a, this is a figurative exchange. The question at some level is who, is who is God releasing them to? And he's releasing them to themselves and their own decadence. They're going after their own stuff and he's just going to go there. So huh, why would they go after these other gods? And I don't know if we need to get too deep into that because there's lots of reasons why people worship whatever they feel like. And it always comes back to a heart that says, I prefer my own instincts over what God says is good for my life. And so they just go after anything. Pick your poison. And there's seven different groups of gods. These are all polytheistic situations. So they have you know, probably scores, maybe even hundreds of gods to pick from. So verse 8 says, From that year they they being the Abanites and the Philistines, harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. All the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan and the land of the Amorites in Gilead. And moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan, that means they went west, to fight against Judah also. 
against Benjamin, against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. The word harassed there, I think, has a stronger connotation than we usually read it in the English. If you're harassing me, I can just like get my thick skin on and, and not deal with you. But here the word harassed means to shatter someone, to break it apart. Uh, and then it says oppressed, which means to crush someone. It's the same word that got used when they crushed Abimelech's head in, in 953, when we see that coming. Uh, so this idea that they were, they weren't just bothering or teasing the Israelites, they were crushing them, they were breaking them. Uh, they were turning them back into slaves like they were in Egypt. So it establishes the conditions that we arrive at this next story with. It sets up Jephthah as a judge that's going to turn that back. God got these people out of slavery. He's not going to let them stay in slavery. But he is releasing them to have 18 years of that kind of an oppression kind of situation. So you get the Ammonites with Jephthah, and then you get the Philistines with Samson. This sets up the rest of the book of Judges. These are the two last groups that they haven't dealt with. So if you haven't noticed as we've gone through the book, every other major group that's been in the area, there's been a judge that's dealt with them. So we've had one that's dealt with Canaanites, Midianites, Amicalites, and now we got these two last groups, Ammonites and Philistines, which sets up the rest of the book of Judges, the book of Ruth, and the beginning of the book of Samuel. So the narrative, the narrative books that we're going through right now, this idea that the Philistines are still around is still going to be there when King David shows up. So they become the chief antagonist of Israel in the narrative of the Bible. Uh, it sets up David and the giant. That giant is a Philistine, right? So um, they need to be dealt with. This is what God commanded Israel to do. They haven't completed their goal yet. So we get Jephthah who's going to step up and take care of one of those two groups, the Ammonites, tonight. Um, it says they were severely distressed, means besieged, surrounded. Uh, so at the end of the day, think about this, serving the world's gods, all the world's gods they could come up with, the complete set, it doesn't actually lead to fulfillment and happiness. When you serve the world, it actually leads to severely distressed is the definition. And that's kind of how it works. When you serve after false gods, they don't actually help you and make you better. They actually lead to something. They might look good at the beginning, but they lead to distress and anxiety and stress and depression and shame and anger and hate. They don't lead to the fruits of the Spirit. They lead the opposite direction. With God, you've got to like discipline. You've got to make a sacrifice to commit to the Lord. You have to keep his feasts. Oh, how horrible this is. Pray, be at his temple, gather in synagogue. Um, and those things are things you decide and choose to do. But the end result of those is amazing blessing and joy and happiness and all the fruits of the Spirit. So when you make things sacred in your life, it seems like you're giving something up, but it actually works the opposite way. God honors those gifts. So verse 10, And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We've sinned against you because we've both forsaken our God and served the Baals. This sounds like a great confession. Um, the Lord doesn't accept it. And this is the first time in the Bible you see a group of people cry out to the Lord and he doesn't immediately jump, right? So something's busted here that's deeper than we've seen before. Verse 11, so the Lord said to the children of Israel, and notice he's going to list seven groups of people, did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Ammonites? 
and from the people of Ammon, two different groups, and from the Philistines, also the Sidonians and the Amal- Amal- Amalekites and the Maonites or the Midianites, it's another word for Midianite, oppressed you and cried out to me and I delivered you from their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. This is crushing, right? When God says, I've had enough and I'm not going to deliver you, that's something where we need to raise our eyebrow and go, wait, what? That's not the character of God we've seen so far. What's different about this situation? This is the first time in the Bible God denies his people when they cry out to him. First time it happens. So there's a turning point right here in this chapter in the narrative of the Bible. At this turning point, we get to see that God forgives, but God also has some limits to where he's like, you keep following after other things, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to deliver you, right? So they have to change their hearts for that deliverance. It's not about just saying the right words. And I think that's what we can pull out of this chapter and we'll get there in a second. So from Genesis until now, we've seen that whenever we see the number seven, it's a number of completeness. And notice how at the end of this passage, he says, he lists all these people that they've freed him from. And then he says, you've forsaken me and served other gods, which was also a list of seven. You have completely gone after other gods and I have completely delivered you, right? And I think God's just trying to say, look, it goes both ways here. And then we've seen that all the way from Genesis. And and again, go to Deuteronomy 32. You'll see the parallels here as to these two chapters coming together. So there's a fulfillment that happens here. God delivers the people of Israel from anything that's come at them up to this point. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as sparks fly upwards, Job 5 You knew that right off the top of your head? I'm so impressed. Job 5, verse 6. The rest of us maybe need to write that one down. Where does trouble come from in our life? One perspective or one cause of trouble in our life is what we create. We're our own worst enemy. And we make most of the trouble in our life, I would argue. Right? And when we do that, the proper response is to go back to God and renew our commitment to God, renew our devotion to God's way and God's word for us. And I think that's what God's saying in these verses. You went off and served all these other gods of these nations and they're the nations I delivered you from. I beat those gods and now you're back to serving those same gods. Why are you serving a God that's less than the God who delivers you? It's a great argument and, you know, God made it, so it's a good argument. So a lot of times in our life when there's troubles, one of those things is to humble ourselves and say, Lord, forgive me. What do I need to change to get back on your path, right? Verse 14, God even drives it in with, I think, a little bit of like needling them in the side. Go and cry out to the gods which you've chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. God knows that they can't deliver them because they're fake gods. But God's basically saying, look, you made these choices Why don't you go to those things that you choose over me and see if they deliver you and fix your life? And that to me is amazingly convicting, right? All those things that I choose to serve with my time and my money and my resources and my love aren't there to help me 
outside of the Lord God Almighty. They're, God's the only thing that I can invest in and God's actually provides something back for that investment. Everything else is short term. Or you could say you can't take it with you. I like the idea that they've chosen, verse 14, the gods which you've chosen, which means he's putting the responsibility squarely on their shoulders. It is not the Amorites that's the problem and it's not the Philistines that are the problem. They're the problem. And that's a tough message. It's not like your typical Sunday morning feel-good message when we have to accept that idea that maybe we might be part of it. Um, there's a thing that they're defining right now called adrenaline addiction. You ever heard of this? People that get like, they want to go jump out of airplanes and go rappelling off of mountains and do kite flying. There's something born into humanity. We get addicted to the thrill. And adrenaline addiction, people are dying of it because they want the thrill so bad that they keep upping the risk in order to get the adrenaline. Isn't that sad? And I think sometimes idol worship is like that. It starts real great, but to get that high the next time, you got to do a little bit more and add a little bit more, and it starts to get weird and twisted at some point. And it goes off in these directions. Um, so we're drawn to these new and different things, completely drawn in the case of the Israelites. And all, all, just because it's new and different doesn't always mean it's good. And it doesn't mean it's guiding us or leading us to God. So... I will go to Deuteronomy 32 on this one because when it says, go and cry out to your gods, God said he was going to say that to them, right? I just love how this comes back around. Deuteronomy 32, verse 37. God will say, where are your gods, the rock in which you sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices, drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise and help you and be your refuge. So God's just like, I told you so. And I just, to me, that endears God to me. God has a kind of, he knows how we work. He knows how our brain works. And he knows sometimes we need somebody to give us a tough time. And that that's actually good for our heart at some point. So God sees their heart. He rejects their repentance because he sees their heart. And he says so in verse 14. He can see that in their hearts, they've chosen other gods. So it doesn't matter what words they say. If the lifestyle doesn't match the words, that's an embarrassment for God's people. You can say you're a believer, but if you don't live that way, there's a mismatch. And the terrifying thing for anyone with a conscience is that God knows the difference. He knows your depths of your heart. So asking God for help while you're still hanging out with other gods is saying the truth, but living a farce. And it's busted. It just doesn't work like that. God sees through it. He knows who you are. And he doesn't let them blame the Amorites. He, he blames them and who they've chosen. Verse 15. Point made. Everybody's with me on this? Okay, point, uh, verse 15. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do you see the difference between this one and that one? Just in the first three words. We have sinned. They're owning what they've done, right? Do to us whatever seems best to you. They give up their life to the Lord and put it in his hands. Only deliver us this day, we pray. Being with you, even with punishment, is better than being with these other gods and for sure having oppression and shame and deep distress. We choose God's punishment over the world's offerings. This is a huge shift. It's very different than the last one. So they put away the foreign gods and it's met with action. 
They're actually going to do something about these foreign gods. They put away the foreign gods from among them and they serve the Lord. Notice that they're serving the Lord before the Lord is honored or forgiven, right? They're just going to start doing the right thing even though they, because they've got God's word. So they're going to do what it says in the Bible even if God doesn't say directly that they're on good terms. And his soul, could no, his being God's, could no longer endure the misery of Israel. God hates misery. He doesn't like to watch it happen, right? With the new puppy we have right now, when it pees in the living room and we say, no, we get all mad at it. Its tail goes between its legs and it looks so cute. But we keep a disposition towards the dog of no. So we want him to know we don't like bad behavior. Don't pee on the carpet, right? But in our hearts, we're just going, oh, we love this puppy. It's so cute, right? And I think to some degree, God loves us, but we do things he can't have happening. And he says, no. But at the same time, he's going to save Israel because he can't endure the misery they're going through. But that misery is part of him saying, don't serve other gods. Don't serve after the world. So I, I think it's one of those things where you shouldn't doubt the love of God in these verses, but in fact, know how deep that love goes. That he loves us so much that he'll discipline us and train us. The key to God's forgiveness, I think, is that it says we have sinned. This is a big deal. I can release and forgive trespasses against me. I can forgive people who have sinned against me. But I can't, until somebody comes to me and says, would you forgive me? Then that, it's not really forgiveness. I can let go of it in my heart, so it's not on me if I've been wronged. But there isn't really a reconciliation of the relationship and then unless somebody asks for forgiveness and the other person gives the forgiveness. And that's the difference here is they actually say we've sinned, they admit what they've done wrong and then they ask for that forgiveness and show it through their actions. You ever had somebody where they've wronged you and you say in words, I forgive you and it's there but there still needs to be a change in action because if they just keep doing the same thing, that's going to be awfully hard to hear that verbal request for forgiveness. So in, when they change their action in verse 16, we see that there has been a change of heart because we see their actions have changed. That is not works-based theology in any way, shape, or form. But it is saying something like what James said is that if you do love the Lord, it should change how you behave. And we see that is consistent here in the Old Testament. So also in verse 16, an interesting thing, when it talks about God, it refers to God having a soul. His soul cannot endure it any longer. In the Hebrew, that word soul has something to do with will. We've seen it before, but it has to do with his intention or his goal. So my soul is something that pushes towards something. My soul can either push towards God or it can push towards the world. God's soul pushes in concert with his will, right? So you see this idea that his soul cannot endure it any longer, this life of God. Then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead, and the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, who is, this, who is the man who will begin to fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So it's, this is an interesting transition. The word is then in, in verse 17, meaning that this repentance process had something to do with looking for a leader again. And again, we're preparing, all of this prepares us for King David. It's also an image of the Jewish people 
if they're not going to serve after other gods, they want somebody to make a connection between them and God. They have since Moses, right? When they're like, Moses, you stand between us and God. We can't quite do it directly. But you have a nation that's learning how to look for a hero or look for a Messiah. And we see that character starting to develop right now because they start praying for it. And this is just local to Gilead, but I think it's a nice little thing because we're, they're beginning to recognize a pattern. When they need help from the Lord God Almighty, they start to look for a savior. And it's conditioning an entire nation to look for these saviors that are overflowing with the spirit of God, which God chooses because he puts his spirit into people. It says Israel's assembled together. And I've said judges is kind of a devolution of the nation, but that's, an, that's awesome. Have we seen Israel assembled together in the book of Judges? Not really. Not since Joshua. So the fact that all 12 tribes are assembling together says Israel's starting to come together around this despair that they're in, and it's pointing them right to Jesus. So then we get to Judges 11, and, 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 it, and again, this introduces... We're going to go through the next two chapters because I just want to finish this and get to Samson, to be blunt. And it's all kind of one narrative. So Jephthah shows up. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, Gileadite was a mighty man of valor. The same definition we gave Gideon. Uh, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead begot Jephthah, which means Gilead was messing around with harlots. Gilead's wife bore sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out. And they said to him, you shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you're the son of another woman. You're a bastard, and we don't want you around. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob, and worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went roaring and went out raiding with him. Okay, so not your typical archetype of a hero. His parentage or lineage is not that great, and at this point the Jews are looking with, for people with good heritage because they're looking for a savior. Then being the son of a harlot is not, but God's, I think, introducing the idea that he's going to pick a savior from whoever he wants to. And maybe in that genealogy, there might be some women. And maybe in that genealogy, there might be some women of questionable parentage and heritage, which is exactly what we see in chapter one of Matthew, is that we see that, that that's the kind of genealogy we have. So when we look at the first few verses of Judges 11, Pay attention to what God's conditioning Israel to look for. And he's showing them that he can inspire somebody. It doesn't matter who their parents are. It doesn't matter where they came from. None of that matters to God. In fact, what happened yesterday to God is not as important as where he wants to take you tomorrow. And it really doesn't matter what kind of shame might be in your family or background. God still loves you and wants to move forward. Then you get some other things. The reason they kick him out is that he shouldn't have an heritage, which implies that Gilead loved him and that the brothers and sisters felt strongly that Gilead was going to give him an inheritance if they didn't kick him out. So a little like Joseph maybe, and that they could see that Gilead had affection for this Jephthah, and that he was a valley, he's, a, he's a man of valor, implies he knows how to get into a fight. And then you get this passage, Tob is out in Syria. So this is pretty rough territory, this land even today. It's not like robust, lush territory. It's pretty dry and nasty, and it's hard to make a living out there. So when he runs out to Tob, not only is he leaving the promised land, he's leaving any land we've seen biblical characters be in so far to date in the Bible. Like, he's just going out there. So he's going out into the wilderness, 
Sherwood Forest, and he's hanging out in the rough lands of that territory. Um, and you might think that you'd see some indication that Jephthah would do the whole why me, woe is me. He'd go off like a hermit in the woods. But we don't see that at all with this character. Instead of questioning God, he actually assembles a group of people and they start fighting the enemies of God. And they start doing battle against the Ammonites. So God uses these circumstances in Jephthah's history to actually get him ready for the ministry that he wants him to have. I think that's super important, especially if you come from a background where you've had some tough experiences. Maybe those experiences are part of what God needed you to go through so that you can serve him where he wants you to serve. And that's as simple as having a health issue or a family issue. Think of how you can minister to people that are going through those issues when you've already come through them. And he's got just preparing you for a kind of ministry in the body. The worthless man is worthy of translation. (laughs) When we say worthless, we mean good for nothing. These are not good for nothing men. The, the translation there, it's a tough translation. In the Hebrew, it's vain or empty or something that doesn't have value to others. Poor people, right? So the rating that's going on here is not happening against the Israelites because he's up and told. So he's not raiding and robbing Israelites. He's raiding and robbing the Ammonites who are busy raiding and robbing the Israelites. In other words, he's forming a small little band of rebels to fight against the people that are attacking Israel. Really similar to what David does against the Philistines, right? This little group of people that he's gathered together. Think Robin Hood instead of like like Blackbeard, okay? Think robbing from the Ammonites and giving to the Israelites or feeding their families. And the, the David reference is in 1 Samuel 25. In other words, he's out there with these people that the rest of the world don't think have worth, but he's gathered together and he's made them worth something. And he's taken these people that are broken or poor and he's taught them to fight. So at the same time, in every one of these little skirmishes he has with the Ammonites, he's getting experience points. And he's becoming the most experienced warrior that Israel has. And God put him in this situation to do it. So he's been fighting for years against the Ammonites. Who's the person best prepared to fight the Ammonites? This guy up doing the work and has been for a long time since we kicked him out of the house. So in verse 4, it comes to pass after a time. So there's a time of period of time when these little warriors are out fighting the evil sheriff of Nottingham. And then they come to him that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. Now it's an overt attack. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gidead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. They actually knew where the guy went. So he wasn't like that much in hiding. They could send a messenger and find him. And then they said to Jephthah, come and be our commander that we might fight against the people of Ammon. So uh, Ammon, we should note, this is in the area of, of, so you look at Syria and the people of Ammon. People of Ammon never really went away. They just inhabited an area where their capital city was called Ammon. And today that city is still called Ammon if you look at the nation of Jordan. So these are the ancestors of the Jordanians today, or who we call Jordan today. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? Like, that's an obvious question, right? You hate, I thought you hated me. Why am I so useful to you all of a sudden? It re, he reminds them of that they're coming to him when they need something. And that it indicates that it wasn't just his brothers coming out because he's, 
Here he's talking to the elders of Gilead, verse 7, which means when his brothers kicked him out, it seems like the whole community was part of it, right? The whole group were, were, were active and complicit in this because when he says, did you not hate me, it means the whole town hated him. So for in, in the ancient world, if you're trying to live under God's law, the son of a harlot's just a big reminder that people are breaking the law in their private lives. And it's kind of why throughout history, those types of children are an embarrassment to their communities. So when they kick them out, they do it at their, because of what they want to look like on the outside, but he's recognizing that their hearts on the inside were full of hate. And that happens a lot. Sadly, it happens in the church. We look really good from the outside, and on the inside, there's people that are just messed up. So, again, we just get these images. If you look at the Old Testament as a giant idiom for Jesus Christ, you get these connection points. Here's a guy that's rejected and thrown out that becomes their savior, right? Jesus, about Jesus, Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him, Isaiah 53.3. We get these characters in the Bible that are these great images of God using people that the world despises. And so we see that again here. Verse 6, I'm sorry, 8. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and to be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So they just repeat their request and acknowledge that's why we're asking you now. And we, we recognize that. So Jephthah's hardship actually prepares him to be perfectly ready to defend his people. That rough life prepared him for a tough fight. And lots of times in the, in the kingdom, we are scared to welcome in people that have had a rough life. And maybe we shouldn't be. Maybe we should be ready to bring those people in as warriors. Those are people that are ready to fight if they turn their life to the Lord. That's why. So they show repentance. They're going to honor somebody that they had previously dishonored. Verse 9, so Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back home and fight, and fight, to fight against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? Now we know something about Jephthah. He serves the Lord and he's putting the Lord right in the middle of this whole thing. Um, and the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. The witness there is sama. It means to listen. In other words, when they say the Lord is our witness, it means we know the Lord is listening to us right now. And what we're saying to you is binding. So we're going back to Deuteronomy law. That says Israel's maybe coming around in some cool ways. It says the Lord, the Lord there should be in all caps in your Bible. They use Jehovah. So they, even though they're serving all these other gods, they still know who Jehovah is. They recognize who the real God with the real power is. And they're reaching out to a guy who actually serves that God. And bringing him in. So we get the idea that Jephthah is rough, but he's faithful and he serves the Lord God. Even when the nation's lost, he's there. Think riders of Rohan, right? Again, that small little group of people just doing the right thing, even though the king's, you know, infected with being misled after other gods. So then Jephthah, verse 11, went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them and Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mitzvah and made him head. The all his words there means that they did a ceremony. There was an or, or a coronation and he says the words, I accept being head. They use the word head because they don't have a king. The Lord is king. So they just switch the word out. 
So this is people doing word splicing. We don't actually have a king, but we have a head, right? So you can do that. I think God kind of knows what you're up to. Uh, mitzpah, in the book of Judges, when we see these references, they're often references to old things in earlier times. Mitzpah, it means watch in the Hebrew. And there's a vow that's made here between Laban and Jacob in Genesis 31. So God sees that vow. He reigns over it. And when he takes his vows to be the head of the people of Gilead, he does it at Mitzvah, which is a significant location where these kinds of vows get made. So they are throughout the Old Testament identifying key locations, identifying people. There's patterns of thought, and it sets up a nation that is looking for a Messiah. That said, he gets to work. No one having put their hand to the plow should look back, for that's not fit for the kingdom of God. And Jephthah doesn't look back. He looks forward. That was Luke 9.62. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, saying, what do you have against me that you've come to fight against me in my land? So notice that Jephthah doesn't go out with swords and armors and start fighting. Why? Because God's law says before you make war on somebody, you try to resolve it with words first. So he does it. He sends a messenger saying, why are you attacking Israel? Um, and, and in this, he's going to give a series of arguments. And I think it's nice just for, for a literary purpose to break down the different arguments Jephthah provides here. He's not that rough around the edges because he's giving very complex arguments in this process. So when he says, my land, <laughs> he immediately takes ownership of this territory, which I think is kind of cool for a leader to be given the headship and immediately he just says, now, now you're dealing with me. Um, and he says, and he doesn't mention the Lord in this first question. It's just a personal argument. Uh, why, have you come against the, why have you come against me to fight against it? So Deuteronomy 20, verse 10, his job is to proclaim peace before he makes war. So that's what he does here. He establishes who the aggressor is. It's a, a carefully worded question. And Ammon's going to disagree. Verse 13. The king and the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, quote, because Israel took away my land when they came out of Egypt from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore those lands peaceably. You could pull that right out of the newspapers today, right? They've been dealing with these, the people around Israel for thousands of years saying, return our land. Jephthah, however, gives a, an interesting response to that. Um, but these conflicts that people have, verse 13 looks really nice at a first read, but it's an absolute lie. Most conflicts between people happen because one of the two parties, or both, is believing a lie. And that lie needs to be unpacked and unsorted in order for any kind of truth or peace to come out of that situation. It's hard to move forward when you got somebody believing a lie. So when he gives this history in verse 13, it's an absolute and total lie based on the history we've seen. It's even a lie based on their histories, right? So you can go back and read the Moabite stone and some of these other ancient history pieces, but this king says something that's not true, and he knows it's not true, and it's not true even in secular or worldly records from the ancient world. Uh, the response is to show a few things. Jephthah's going to show the Ammonites that he's not a fool. He's not just some country hick. He's been well-educated and well-trained. Second, he's going to show them that the Israelites keep written records, which we've gone through. So we know the written records, and he has them, and he can reference them when he makes his argument. And then three, this is going to be the first example in world history where somebody just gets schooled. And, and I think in the literal sense of the term, he's just going to educate them. 
And that's his battle that he's going to fight with them initially. So he gives a historical argument. He takes them to school. And that's what we get. So if you want the historical argument, you can go to Numbers 22. That'd be a second little mini Bible study for you. He's pretty much paraphrasing Numbers 22. And the phrases that are here shows the depth of education that Jephthah had. He knew the word of God um, because he's able to respond to these folks and he is miles from the tabernacle where those scrolls are being kept. So either as copies of those scrolls or he's learned them and memorized them as a youth. Because what I'm about to read from verse 14 to verse 18 is absolutely a paraphrased version of Numbers 22. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people Ammon and he said to him, thus says Jephthah, Israel didn't take away the land of Moab nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up out of Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and they came to Canish. In other words, we came out of Egypt as a bunch of slaves. We didn't take any land from anybody. We didn't have the strength to. And we didn't even go towards your land when we came out of Egypt. So let's correct this mistake in history. Verse 17. Then Israel says, sent messengers to the king of Edom and he said, please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner, they sent to the king of Moab. Do you remember all this from Numbers? But he said that he would not consent. So did Israel fight Edom or Moab? No. So Israel remained in Kadesh. That's exactly what happened. They didn't go conquering lands. Verse 18, and they went along through the wilderness to bypass the Edom and Moab. They carefully went out of their way to not trespass on other people's land. And I think this is great how Jephthah is just reminding them, we didn't come out of Egypt and attack you. We actually made requests to pass through land and then we honored the no's that we got twice. That's the character of our nation. We actually were, were graceful with these people. And we came to the east side of the land of Moab and encamped on the other side of the Arnon. Now the Arnon's on their border, but they did not enter the border of Moab for the Arnon was the border of Moab. He's quoting Numbers 21, 22. So we've established that Israel asked permission and then they honored the resp and respected to no answers. It's important. The Jewish people record that they didn't start wars. And I've made that point all the way through from Numbers to here. It's an it's attack we see today on the Old Testament. The Israelites were just bloodthirsty killers. And the Bible actually records the opposite story. They did the opposite of bloodthirsty killer. They actually asked permission and said, please. Right? They're not those people. And they get accused of being those people all the way through human history. Even unto today. They're accused of being the aggressors. So Sihon doesn't say no. Uh, we remember Sihon the Grinch. We've talked about him. He actually, not only does he doesn't say no to them, he attacks them. The Amorites had the land when they arrived, uh, which is a point that he makes here that's really subtle. Um, so when we got here, the Amorites had the land, not the Ammonites. Both start with an A, two different groups of people. And that's a really important point because he's not taking the land from them. They actually, when they get that land, they got it from a group that had conquered them. So here's the legal argument, verse 19. We got the historical one, we got the personal one, now legal. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, not Ammonites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land into our place. But Sion didn't trust Israel to pass through the territory. So Sion gathered all his people together, encamped at Jahaz, and fought Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sion and all his people into the hand of Israel, 
which means they had control of it when it's in their hand, and they defeated him. Thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. So we got the land because we fought a defensive war and we won it. And in the ancient world, when you won a war, you got the spoils, which was the land or those cities that were being fought over. Verse 22, they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites. Notice he keeps saying Amorites. Amorites, Amorites, Amorites. We took land from Amorites. You weren't there when we got here. The the Amorites took the land from the Ammonites prior to Israel ever showing up on the scene. But here they are back saying that Israel took the land from them. Or at least that's what we saw in verse 13. So they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok, from the wilderness to the Jordan, Numbers 21. As defendants not provoking, they just lay claim to land that they then took by battle. So if this is the case, then he is shredding their argument that they stole the land from him. And then that's not enough because the most important argument isn't the personal argument, the historical argument, or legal argument. The most important argument is the spiritual argument, which comes in verse 23. And now the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim of Israel, has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people of Israel. Should you then possess it? Like, And you are saying you have a claim to it? When our God beat their gods? Will you not possess whatever Chemosh your God gives to you to possess? And that's, that's a snarky question because Chemosh has not given them any land. He hasn't rewarded them or blessed them at all. And worship of this empty God has done nothing for them. So whatever the Lord your, our God takes possession of before us, we will possess it. If God's given us land, we're going to accept that gift. And we didn't get that gift from Chemosh. Chemosh, uh, um, by the way, that's snarky too. And you know when somebody writes a letter and they say things that they know will set you off, if you've ever seen one of these? I hope you have better friends than I do. Um, But they know that it's something that references a past conversation and you don't quite pick it up unless you know the history of it. It's important to note um, that uh, Chemosh is the god of the Moabites, not the Ammonites. So the fact that they're worshiping another nation's God, and he points that out here, he's, he's taken a stab. Uh, I, I mentioned the Moabite stone uh, in, in 860 BC, which is around this season of history in a historical sense. We found or dug up a stone that references Israel. And King Mesha of the Moabites is attempting to and conquers and starts to take over this land again. So at this point in time, we're talking about a, a, a situation where Israel's gaining the upper hand with Jephthah, and he's about to fight this battle. But not long after this, this land is taken back, but it's not taken back by the Ammonites, it's taken back by the Moabites. So they never do get their land back in this situation. But, and this is a little glimpse into the future, on the Moabite stone, this is not the Bible, it says, Israel has gone to ruin. Yes, it's gone to ruin forever. So the Moabite stone is not true. It's a lie because Israel's still around today. But the stone does tell of Misha, and who is the king who has been put in place by Chemosh, their god. The Moabites mention Chemosh multiple times on their stone. It's the god of that people. First uh, Kings 11.7 completely agrees with the historical aspects of this stone. Only one's told from Israel's side and the other's told from the Moabite side. Here's the Moabite thing. Chemosh said to me, go and take Nebo from Israel. And I went in the night and I fought against it. And from the break of dawn until noon, I took it 
and I killed the whole population. Uh, 7,000 male citizens and aliens. They killed the people living with Israel that weren't Israelites. Female citizens and aliens and servant girls. For I had put it to the ban of Ashtar Chemosh. And from there I took the vessels of Yahweh. They actually use Y-H-W-H. I took the vessels of Yahweh and I hauled them before the face of Chemosh. So there is a point where God releases this territory and the Moabites come in and reconquer it, right? I just like those connections. Um, But those stones are referencing all the same gods that we see in these things. One verse, verse 25, he gives a political argument. Politics being the exercise of power in people, people groups. And now... You are, are you better than, any, than Balak, the sons of Zippor, the king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? Again, Numbers 22. Uh, basically, you're, you attacked and your gods produced a loss. Are you better than the people we took this land from? You haven't been able to take it. You haven't taken it. And then you get the squatters argument, which is still political. And we've been here for a long time. So deal with it. So verse 26, while Israel dealt in Heshbon and its villages, in Aurora and its villages, and all the cities of the banks of the Arnon for 300 years, why didn't you recover them at that time? So why are they making this claim now? Because Israel's weak. That's why. They think they can get the upper hand. And it looks that way from the world's perspective. So they got a third, a claim to the land, personal, political, spiritual, historical, and then just we're here kind of thing. So he makes all these arguments and he makes these arguments so that he can give peace through conversation. Is it going to work? Nope, it won't work. But at least he lays out the arguments. He gives them a chance to see the reason and logic of it. But sometimes the people that are enemies of God don't think in terms of reason and logic. And we often make the mistake thinking everyone thinks with reason and logic but everyone does not think with reason and logic. Therefore, Jephthah's stating his case. I have not sinned against you, but you've wronged me by fighting against me. I think when we have conflict with people, it's important to say, I want, to, I want shalom with you. I've done nothing to attack you, and I didn't try to attack you, but I think you've done something that's been hurtful to me. Like raiding cities and killing people, that's hurtful. Don't do that. So I think this is really gracious given the situation, verse 27, may the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. He puts God right in the middle of it. You know what? At the end of the day, let the Lord judge. And if we lose, then maybe God's with you. And if we win, maybe God's with us. And Jephthah's happy to take either outcome. Verse 28, however, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words that Jephthah sent him. All right. He did what he was supposed to do under the law. So Jephthah's done everything he can do, biblically speaking, following Numbers, Deuteronomy, and what he's supposed to do to make an effort towards peace with somebody that he's in conflict with. When they ignore it, it's on, and we're going to have a battle. Then the Spirit of the Lord. I think it's important that the word then is there. The Spirit of God comes on Jephthah when he needs the Spirit of God upon him. And he needs that help from the Lord right now because he's about to fight an overwhelming force that's been having the upper hand with Israel for a long time. But where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. 2 Corinthians 3.17. So they gather, they get together. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. Okay, that's not good. Wait, is he supposed to make vows to the Lord? 
No, he's not really supposed to do that. There's nothing that obligates him to do that. God's already promised him and told him what to do, but he's a little enthusiastic. And here's his vow. This is the famous vow of Jephthah in the Old Testament. If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. All right, that's not good. So there's two very different reads on this. One is that, the burnt, that his, he actually burns his daughter as a sacrifice. The other read on this is that he offers her up for temple dedication. So we need to, in order to understand which way that is, I think we need to understand that thus far Jephthah's done everything according to the Bible. And unless we're told that somebody's in sin, we should assume they're doing it the way God told them to in the Old Testament. So if you, well, we'll get into that in a little bit. The main thing is right now, he didn't need to do this. God had already blessed him. Here's the other thing. The spirit of God comes on him in verse 29, and then he does this. So it's a lot like that situation in Gideon, where the spirit of the Lord comes on Gideon, and then he does the thing with the sheep's wool. Why? Because God's setting up images that we're supposed to learn from for all of history. And sometimes these things happen, so we see what sacrifice looks like. We see what honor looks like. And we see some of these things that are maybe God's way of calling people out and doing things. And I think that makes this, again, the book of Judges is a tough book to dig into theologically. And we may disagree over some of these things, but you know what I like to say? It's okay for us to disagree as long as we're talking about the Bible. I think that's healthy, right? And we can do it as in an amiable way. So the in, here's one thing. Here's an image that I can get out of this. Even though the Holy Spirit is on a human being, it doesn't mean that they're smart, right? Just because you feel like the Spirit told you to do something doesn't mean that that can't still be your flesh talking a little bit. This is our first really good example of that because it's hard to read that any other way, right? Spirit of the Lord's on him. He makes a stupid vow. Okay, maybe that wasn't the spirit of the Lord. Maybe his enthusiasm was from the Lord, but this whole vowing, the first thing that comes out of your tent thing, that's not coming from God because God never asked him to do that and it's contrary to the will of God. God doesn't want human sacrifices. He doesn't desire them and he thinks they're abominable. So the Holy Spirit never tells us to do something that's opposite God's word. That's not the Holy Spirit, right? But God might make us enthusiastic. He might give us an energy to do something that we're called to do. Um, so we have this situation. It, the other thing that's interesting here is in verse 31, it says, whatever comes out of his, the doors of his house to meet him. He's expecting when he gets home that something will come out of the tent. And it's not whoever, it's whatever. So in his head, he might be imagining that when his goats and sheep and animals see him, that the first one to get to him, because they're, you know, they're looking for food, they follow their shepherd, Right? that when he gets home, it'll be the animals will be the first thing he sees. And the first animal to get to him, he will then offer as a burnt offering. I think that's what's going through his head here because he says whatever, not whoever, right? First thing to note in this passage. If a man makes a vow to the Lord, Numbers 30, verse 2, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Because if we reflect God and every word out of God's mouth is true, it's a great sin for us not to reflect that in our own lives. If we speak it, we need to do everything we can do to make it happen. 
because we are representatives. We carry his banner, and it's important. So it's a big deal. Jephthah knows that. When he makes a vow, he's got to keep it. He's taught his whole family that lesson, right? So verse 32, so Jephthah advanced towards the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands, and he defeated them from the Aurora as far as Mineth, 20 cities, and to Abel, Karamim, it was a great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. Unlike the, the Mesha stone or the Moabite stone where they slaughter everybody, even the servant girls, Israel doesn't do that. They subdue them, which means anybody who wants to run can get away, right? They're just going to take out the military resistance that they get in these cities. So I'm sure that at each city it got less and less. We get very little about the conquest because the conquest doesn't matter. It's this vow that matters in this narrative, and that's where it's going to go back to. So Jephthah overcomes it. God gives him the victory. Why would God give him a victory if he's going to burn his daughter, right? Because that's where this is going if you haven't heard the story before. That doesn't make any sense that God would do that or ask of that. So we get to verse 34. When Jephthah, how many of you have heard that he burnt his daughter? Like, is that the narrative you heard? A couple of you have? Okay, so I don't want to be hitting a straw man. Patrick, you've heard it both ways because you've been through the Bible like five times. Okay, so, and I've heard good Christian people believe it both ways for different reasons, and they both have some support in the text. I obviously lean one way on this. But Jephthah came to his house at Mitzpah, and there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing. That's just, why add those details, <laughs> right? Because you can see this little seven-year-old and she's got stuff and she's bouncing up and down. Daddy, daddy, daddy. And you know how kids are? She's running out to see him. And as this happens, his heart just goes, oh, no. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. Again, they're just really building this up. Like, this is horrible. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes. That's an indication of, of grief. That passage, he tore his clothes, indicates somebody's died or they've lost their life because that's what you do in grief in the ancient world. And he said, alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low. You're among those who trouble me for I've given my word to the Lord and I can't go back on it. What a horrible thing for this little girl to hear from her dad. Not even a hug, just you make my life miserable. Like this is just not good. All of this bad comes because he did something, he made a vow and he didn't need to make it. So now, um, by the way, on this vow, he's not talking to God on this. We see no evidence of prayer. Um, and here's, here's the thing. There's no indication that this is a great evil in any other sense that she doesn't get to celebrate marriage, right? So we, a, this is where I need to go back to Deuteronomy here and, and do this. So, Deuteronomy 12.31 says, Thou shalt not do unto the Lord thy God for every abomination to the Lord which he hates they've done for their gods. Even their sons and daughters they've burnt in the fire of their gods. It is a clear command in Deuteronomy we do not do child sacrifice. Absolutely clear. And just because you made a vow doesn't mean you, that vow allows you to break God's law. That's stupid. And God's a smart God and he expects his followers to be smart people. So that's one piece of the law. So there's nothing in the text that implies that she is killed. And in fact, Jephthah's listed in Hebrew 11 as one of the faithful, one of the people that stuck to God's word. So 
it's hard to read this a lot like Gideon and think he's one of the champions of the faith when he did child sacrifice. That's almost like saying that Hebrews is a lie and it's busted. So, you, so he's a person of faith and as a person of faith, the law clearly says you don't do bird sacrifice, right? God never avenges her. He's avenged every other great evil in the Bible so far and she's never avenged. In fact, she's commemorated, all right? So that's another clue. There's no talk of a consequence for Jephthah, no talk of suffering, no elimination of his headship of Israel. Um, none of that happens. So in Exodus 38.8, there's an image of women that stand before the tabernacle. And those women are given to prayer. And they're committed to that prayer. Even up into the New Testament, we see women in front of the temple that have committed their entire life to prayer and service at the temple. And depending on how you are in your household, that service can be run in the place or it can just be like cleaning up after the sacrifices. It doesn't say what their role is other than they are women of prayer and that they serve the temple. They help out and they do things around there. So we have a consistent image of women being given to the temple and we get a, a law that's called substitutionary sacrifice. So when a human is given to the Lord, instead of killing them, they serve the temple and you pay 30 shekels of silver to redeem that person with a payment. So we don't do human sacrifices under the law. We never do. But you can give your child to service to the temple for the rest of their life. And then you can pay if you want to buy that person back from the temple, you can pay 30 shekels of silver. If Jephthah's poor, he doesn't have the silver. So he's actually going to give his daughter over. And that's what you do with a human being under the law. None of that's explained here because they assume you know it because you too have read the law. And you know that that's how this works. So when a man makes a singular vow, the persons, of shall, uh, the persons shall be for the Lord by thy estimation. And if it is a female, then thy estimation shall be 30 shekels. That's where I get that from. So a vow can be made that commits somebody to the Lord. This happens in warfare all the time. Lord, if you get me through this, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. And this happened in World War II. A lot of those soldiers came back and turned into pastors. And they made a vow, like, get me through this, Lord. And the Lord did. So really in the church, the only tradition where we see this as murder is in the last 100 years of Christian theology. So we've gone about 1,900 years and a couple more thousand if you count Jewish history. Virtually nobody in history believed that this is a murder. It's only modern theological scholarship that starts to paint the picture of these characters being somehow these evil characters. Jephthah didn't, I don't think he killed his daughter. Um, so still, what are we supposed to learn here? The guy used his mouth and it was foolish. And what he said was foolish because he didn't want to give up his daughter to the temple. He wanted to raise his daughter and be with her. But don't be rash with your mouth, Ecclesiastes 5.2, and let your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God's in heaven and you on earth, therefore let your words be few. Don't have a big stupid mouth like Jephthah. And save yourself some trouble. So verse 36, the daughter says to Jephthah, so she said to him, my father, this is awesome, if you've given your word to Jehovah, to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth because the Lord has avenged you of all your enemies, the people of Ammon. So when she says gone out of your mouth, it's a very particular phrase in the Hebrew. And the last time we saw it is in Numbers 32, which is in reference to this kind of situation. His daughter wearing timbrels and ribbons, however young that is, knows the word of God off the top of her head. 
What kind of household was Jephthah running? He's running a household where even his kids knew the word of God. That's convicting for any of you that have parenting to do. Teach your kids the word. This is a good family. And the daughter shows amazing willingness to serve and honor her dad's vow. She doesn't, there's no evidence of complaint here. There's no that's not fair, that's unjust. She doesn't do any of that. She just says, Dad, whatever you vowed, I'm on board for it. Wow. Which makes her, this unnamed daughter of Jephthah, one of the most amazing heroes in the Bible that we see. Just absolute willingness to serve and sacrifice. Verse 37, then she said to her father, let this thing be done to me. Let me alone for two months. Oh, let this thing be done for me. Let, a, let me alone for two months that I might go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. Can I just go off with my friends and hang out for a couple months? Road trip? So he said, go. And he sent her away for two months and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity in the mountains. So it's a women's retreat, right? <laughs> to, to bewail something? I had to look that one up. What exactly is bewailing? And it means to cry. They shed tears. She is going to be joining a group of women that from what we know are women of, that have been widowed. And when you're widowed and you don't, you, you, your sons get all the holdings, those widows would often say, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with the Lord. And they'd go down to the temple and they'd be with the Lord. But they're women who got to have kids and enjoy marriage. And those of you that aren't married, marriage is awesome. In fact, by implication, the word of God is saying that marriage is a pretty amazing thing, or it can be if it's done in a godly way. So there's an idea here that her heart was to marry and to be a mom and to be a wife um, and not hang out with a bunch of people that have been widowed at the tabernacle. Like she's going to be the youngest girl in the crew with the longest term serving there. But that's important that she's young because she's going to be there and be one of the women that probably took care of Samuel when he was a kid. This is super cool how she gets there. Like make the connection. So her heart is, is then in there, but her heart to serve her father is greater than her heart to serve herself. That's awesome. This is the roots of where Catholics get the nunship from. Or is there a word for that? The nunnery, nunnaby, that women can commit their lives to the Lord. And throughout history, that part of the Catholic church has been a place where women that would otherwise be in trouble could go to get food and shelter. And I don't know if that's still how it operates in the Catholic Church because I'm not Catholic, um, but it has been a shelter for women where they can come in and just give their life to the Lord and serve literally in the temple or the cathedral or the tabernacle. So, but the wailing here, the mourning here, is not rending clothes and it's not wearing black. No indication of the mourning or bewailing that women would do if someone has died. They're not doing that. It's just they're going to go have their time in the mountains and sing. And I can't get the image of sound of music out of my head, spinning around in the floral hillsides and that sort of thing. Um, I think part of this is in the Jewish culture, there was a promise way back in Genesis 3. And that is that the Savior would come from a woman. It would be the seed of a woman that would crush the serpent's head. So it's like rolling the dice. And you gotta, if you have a baby as a Jewish woman, you got a one in a million chance of being the mom of the Savior. And I think that tradition is going as far back as this, that every woman who could wanted the chance to maybe be Mary. 
that that was a great honor that some woman in human history would have because they had a promise in Genesis 3 that it would be someone's child that would save and, and finally conquer Satan. Isn't that a cool thought? So what's she wailing here is she's going to lose that chance. But what she doesn't know is what God's going to give her the chance to raise Samuel, which is a pretty close second honor to have in that situation. So by implication, it is a blessing to know marriage, to be known by a man is a good thing. So this is getting into PG-13. Um, so to bewail her virginity is to mean she will not have sex. Let's not skip over that point. And, and I think this is important for our unmarried people here. Sex is amazing. And I don't want to go too far down that path, but it is a blessing. And it's a good thing. And I think historically the church has done a lot, like with the Puritans, of making it this untalkable subject. No, it's actually pretty incredible and a great way for two people to bond together in such a way where you become one biblically. You got one person on this person you can trust with everything. And there's nothing worse than the breaking of that bond. But when that bond is godly, it's amazing and it's glorifying and it's wonderful and it's holy. So she's, she's bewailing that. She's setting up this idea. I'm going to go into, if you look at 1 Samuel, oh, here's another thing to study this week. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2, Hannah gives her infant to the temple. And when she gives an infant to the temple, they don't hand the baby to the stupid Levitical priests that don't know what to do with the baby. They hand the baby probably to the women at the temple. So generationally, Jephthah's daughter would have been one of the women there. And here's another cool thing about it. When you ask who's raising Samuel, it's an unnamed woman. It's just one of the women at the temple that's raising him. And, but she would clearly have been there unless something, for some freak reason she died early or something. She would have been there during that period of time in 1 Samuel 2. And Eli's sons have been fornicating with the women at the temple. It's gotten really ugly when you get to 1 Samuel, right? But... Samuel is raised right, 1 Samuel 2.26. There's at least one woman at the temple that has been raised the right way and knows the word of God and is not fornicating with the sons of Eli. There's somebody there that's standing in the gap. And when it says Samuel is raised right, it means that whoever was raising him was raising him correctly in the word of God. Somebody was staying pure and holy at that temple. And when you see this story, just a couple books before it, because Ruth is kind of a standout story, by strong implication, Jephthah's daughter is the one that raises Samuel and raises one of the greatest prophets the nation's going to see, both a prophet and a judge. So he's raised right in 1 Samuel 2.26, and we have this woman that's raising him rightly. It is repeated that Samuel is raised rightly. 1 Samuel 2.11, 2.18, 2.21, 2.26, chapter 3, verse 1. Again and again and again, it says Samuel was raised correctly, correctly, rightly, holy. Who's doing that? And we have an unnamed person that's going to the temple in this book. We have an unnamed person doing all this good stuff later on, another generation forward, who's living in a right way. So it's kind of an interesting connection between those two. You'll have to tell me what you think when we're done. Verse 39. Y'all still with me? I know this is a long one tonight. I don't want to try to squeeze in chapter 12. Like, it is a nothing chapter, so we're going to burn through it. Uh, it's not a nothing chapter. God put it there for a reason. I... I caught myself on that one. But it's, you know, I want to get to Samson next week. So we're, we got a long one tonight. So if you need to get your, do a few jumping jacks or something, keep yourself with me on this. Verse 39. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father. She willingly comes back. 
It was great. And he carried out his vow with, with her, which he had vowed. So some people believe that means he gave her as a burnt sacrifice. I would suggest there's just nothing in the text that fits that narrative. Like that's a hard one for me to buy. I got to really twist my brain to get that. She knew no man. It doesn't say she was burnt on an altar. It does say that Abraham took Isaac and actually set him on an altar. It's very descriptive. The Bible knows how to describe these really horrible situations. We've seen it happen. That's not the description. The description is she gave up marriage and she's then committed to the temple. It became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year. They didn't get two months apparently to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. You know, at least we're daughters that, don't, that can have a shot at making the Savior. And it becomes a tradition, an interesting tradition that they get to do that. Again, there's no burnt offering that's described. Don't get any of that. Just says she didn't know a man, which is sad and tragic, right? It's sad that she doesn't get to experience that part of life. Why would you wait on something like that? By the way, Israelite girls got married at like 14, which is why like sometimes us older people were like, why would you wait on marriage? Get married and start having fun. It's a good thing to do. So there's one of these things where you get this image and, and I think the world tells us to wait, 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 wait. And sometimes, the, you know, in this situation, that would be something to bewail. You're just wasting years that you could be enjoying. So we might think we're missing out on things, but God honors that. And that's the other side of this story. For young people that do want to stay single, she's a hero. And what makes her a hero is that she's sacrificing that part of her life and giving it to God. And when we give any part of our life over to God completely, what a beautiful thing. What an honorable thing. And God takes that and he uses it. And I think he uses it directly with Samuel. And he's just going to bless the whole country with her sacrifice. And they celebrate her. So when we get young ladies that say, I don't think we do nuns in the Catholic, we don't do nuns in the Calvary movement, but we do things where women just say, I want to just serve the Lord. I'm going to commit myself to that and God honors and blesses that in a really powerful way. So like Paul says, if you need to get married, do it. If you don't, God can bless that too. We get a similar thing. Chapter 12. <laughs> Remember when the men of Ephraim came up to Gideon and got all mad at him? Here we are again. Then the men of Ephraim gathered together. Rachel, you just got this this morning, just in that chapter. Then the men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over towards Zephon. So they actually leave their territory to do this. And they say to Jephthah, why did you cross the river over to fight against the people of Ammon? And you didn't call us to go with you. We will burn your house down with fire. Really, Ephraim, really? That's, you didn't get honored enough, so you're just going to burn it all down? So again, we get Ephraim. Again, they're selfish and they want more glory than they deserve. They want honor. Again, they show up after the battle. I think that's significant. Like the work's already been done and Ephraim's just hanging out doing their thing. Uh, if you want to go back to the other story, Joshua 17 is where the other story is. You can cross-reference that. So here's the thing with Ephraim. The other thing too is they have some of the richest land of all the tribes. We'll see later in the Bible, they have some of the most wealth of all the tribes. They've got all the blessings of God and yet they don't have enough and they want more. And it's kind of a tough situation. Again, the primary enemy here isn't the Ammonites. They just dissolve. The primary enemy is other people in the kingdom of God not liking that God's work is being done and going forward. 
That's the primary thing. And this is the toughest thing when you're talking to people outside the church because they'll point to some idiot that calls themselves part of the church and you have to like unpack that. Like actually that wing of the church is not what I believe and what they're doing is actually not honoring God at all in my opinion. And we have to do that a lot because sometimes our worst enemies are people that also claim God as their guiding force. So godly people are encouraged throughout the Bible that we do things for God whether or not anybody sees us or gets the credit. Like when you do a charitable deed, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, Matthew 3, 6. That's a really consistent biblical concept. When you do things for the Lord, it doesn't matter who gets the glory. It really shouldn't. Like in that sense, even Paul says, everybody in the body helps make the body happen. It is not just Paul doing his thing. It's the whole body that makes that work. So everyone in the body gets a share in the glory. And the laws of, of, again, even the military laws, even the people back at the camp share in the glory in Israelite law. They get to share in the spoils. So you got people that are part of an endeavor and it's not just the Ephraimites getting the glory that matters to God. In fact, the Ephraimites are doing the opposite of that. And then they threaten to burn his house down. And it's emphatic. They're going to burn it with fire. I don't know how else you burn things, but it's a double thing. And when we see double Hebrew, that means an emphatic. They're, we're going to burn it and burn it with fire. That's how we're going to burn it. I mean, this is a really hostile approach. And Jephthah, Gideon basically pacifies them and tells them how great they are and he goes about God's work. Remember that was Gideon's response? So the Bible makes it complex because we'd like a single answer to all of our problems in life. Mm -hmm. But here we don't get a single answer. We get a completely different response to the exact same situation. Verse 2, Jephthah said to them, my people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon and when I called you, you didn't deliver me out of their hands. So Gideon pacified them and gave them all the credit. Jephthah's like, no, you losers, I did call you. He reminds them of the history, tells them the truth. So, verse 3, when I saw that you would not deliver me, that you were bailing on me, I took my life in my own hands, I did the work, and I crossed over against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me at this day to fight against me? I haven't done any wrong to you. You've done wrong to me. This is what he did with the Ammonites. Essentially, I don't owe you anything. So this is very different than Judges 8 with Gideon. Jephthah's speaking truth, and then he questions their motivations and their heart. Where's your heart coming from? If you need all that credit, why do you need so much credit? Who are you serving? Right? And he questions them. He puts the Lord in the middle of it, verse 3. The Lord delivered me into my hand. The Lord's actually with me. And I'm seeing the results of God's work when I do what I'm doing. So who are you to question it? Because I don't see the Lord is with Ephraim at this point. No answer is recorded from the Ephraimites. So notice that there's almost like a gap there. We don't even see how they respond. So like my grandma used to say, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. So the Bible doesn't have much good to say about their response. And then it gets to verse 4. Now, this is the response of whatever Ephraim said. Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and they fought against Ephraim. He kills them. So I don't think their response was very nice. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they threatened his home, right? They didn't do that with Gilead. They didn't say, I'm going to burn down your house. Jephthah only had one daughter and he just lost her to the temple, right? And now he's going to go after the rest of his family? That's just cruel. So he said, and the 
they gathered together men and they fought against Ephraim and the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, now we get a little more insight, you, Gileads are, you Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites, among the Manassites. In other words, they said, you're not really Israel. You're not part of our country. You're just fugitives, right? This is a tough thing when the people of God start saying things to each other like, you're not really a Christian. You're not doing it our way. And that's usually the flesh. That's not the spirit of God saying things like that, right? We can judge and discern where people are at a little bit, but when you start saying things like that, or we're going to destroy or burn down your house, this is nasty stuff. The Gileadites seeds the ford of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived, and we get this really odd piece of detail here. And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say, so basically there's a, a ford at the Jordan that you can get back into Ephraim. So as they're running and fleeing from the battle, they had a group of soldiers that, A, outran them so the Ephraimites aren't very fast. So they get there first and then they set up a guard. If you want to cross the fords, all you got to do is say, Shibboleth. Right? That's the word. So they said, let me cross over. The men of Gilead would say, are you an Ephraimite? And if they said, no, I'm not an Ephraimite, then they would say to him, then say, Shibboleth. This is almost like a Monty Python scene. <laughs> and he would say, Sibboleth, for he couldn't pronounce it right. Then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. And there fell at that time, this is no small thing, 42,000 Ephraimites die. So that means 42,000 Ephraimites got away and ran from the battle. So they kill him at the ford. So this is, unique in Israel's history because they are outright just killing people. Remember I said like normally they're the peaceful, nice hobbit people? They're not hobbits anymore. This is nasty. And we start to see that Israel is sinking to a place where even when they're doing the right thing, now they're killing other Israelites. And it's just ugly all the way around. So apparently, Shibboleth and Sibboleth, there's an SH sound in those words that we'd already seen between the tribes of Israel accents starting to emerge. Like if I go to Appalachia, because they say Appalachia, they don't say Appalachia, right? They know if you're a foreigner based on how you pronounce words because it goes all the way back to Washington, George Washington, when they had the Whiskey Rebellion. People up in those hills were making whiskey and George Washington sent the troops up. So, and then the, now they're making meth. But they wanted, they wanted ways to identify when somebody from the federal government was coming out and the mob did this, they made liquor in the 1930s up in those hills. So every single town has a different pronunciation. When you get up into Appalachia and you go to Chauncey, it's not Chancy, it's Chauncey. And they have all these words where they know if you're an insider or not. And if you're an insider, they're rude people. Like you can't even get directions. They'll purposely give you bad directions just because they want to mess with your life. But this is what's going on here. They're going to mess with their life and they're using developing accents between tribes. They don't have a common news service, so it only takes a few generations for accents to develop. People divide very naturally, right? So those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man, Matthew 15, 18. That's a horrible cross-reference. Like I saw that one and I'm like, no, I don't think they're defiling themselves. They're just identifying themselves. And they're using a very clever way to identify Ephraimites. And Jephthah judged Israel for six years. And Jephthah the Gileadite died. And he's buried among the cities of Gilead. He's not the savior. He died. Then you get Isban. There's three judges here. They don't deliver Israel. They don't have the spirit of God. 
They're kind of more secular leaders, but at least they're not going after idols anymore. That's the one thing that's been done in the book of Judges is they're getting the idols out of their system at some level. So verse eight, after him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. There's that city again, little hodunk little city. There's actually two Bethlehems. One's up in the north, one's in the south. Scholars believe this one's in the north. But at the same time, that word Bethlehem just keeps coming up and they're nonsense little cities that they are not Jerusalem or Jericho or Bethel. They're not the big cities at all. This is not Shechem, this is Bethlehem. The one in the south is just a little teeny town where they do some sheep herding. The one in the north is a little teeny town of nothing, right? But how many times have we seen Bethlehem pop up in the Old Testament? Just God's planting his seeds, right? Where when it happens, people will be like, oh, look at that. There's no accidents in the Bible, not one word. Verse 19, he had 30 sons. He gave away 30 daughters in marriage, which implies he's making alliances with other tribes or nations. He bought 30 daughters from elsewhere from his sons. Brought, not bought, sorry. At this point in Israel's history, that wouldn't surprise me. He judged Israel for seven years. Then Ibzan died and he was buried at Bethlehem. So there you go. Then after him, Elon the Zebulonite joined Israel. You know, what's kind of interesting is most of the tribes are getting a judge. There's some tribes that don't, but most of the tribes have some representation in the book of Judges. He judged Israel 10 years and Elon the Zebulonite died. He's buried at Aijalon in the country of Zebulon. So nothing. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just he was there. They're trying to live under God's law. They have a judge that helps him do it. But remember when we set this up back in chapter 10, there was the Ammonites and the Philistines. Nobody's dealing with the Philistines. So that's two judges we've had that haven't finished the story. And that story is there's Ammonites to deal with. Jephthah deals with them. But we still got Philistines. So one question during these years is, What's happening with the Philistines that are still harassing and oppressing the Israelites? And they're still living with that situation. And we just had two judges that have done nothing about it. And we get a third one, judge number 11. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, which interestingly means praising, Hillel. The Pirathonite, I think that has to do with fish that eat meat. I don't, I don't know for sure. But Parathonite, Parana, Parana. Judged Israel. Parathonite is actually an Ephraimite tribe. So low at judge number 11, the Ephraimites finally got a judge. And I hope that makes them happy. I hope they don't threaten to burn this person's house down. He had 40 sons, 30 grandsons, uh, who rode on 70 donkeys. Clearly this is an indicator of wealth and power. It just feels weird to modern ears. But think of it like this. You have 30 sons and 70 Ford Fusions. Or if you can think of a nicer vehicle, I don't know. Ford F-150s or something to that effect. So they just, they've got money. He judged Israel for eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, died and was buried in Pirathon in the land of Ephraim in the mountains of the Amalekites. Amalekites. So the Amalekites are, still have mountains named after them. They're not the mountains of Israel. They're the mountains of the Amalekites which means there's still a group there still hanging out because the Amalekites have to show up whenever there's a battle and jump in. And that's kind of their job in history. So they should be gone, which means Ephraim has still not done what they vowed they would do with Joshua, right? So they're still living side by side with Amalekites and they haven't done their job by clearing out the land.
So for all three, we don't see the Spirit of God like we did with Gideon or Jephthah. Spirit of God hasn't come upon these people. We don't see any advancement of the kingdom of God. We don't see any of them finishing the vows that God's made. We just see them administering God's law, which we should take as maybe a bonus. Like, that's nice. They have a judge that's doing his job. We do have a season of peace that's pretty long. And Israel gets kind of relief, at least from the Ammonites. But we still have the, now the chief enemies of Israel is still the nation of the Philistines. Here's what's cool about the Philistines. They're not actually Canaanites. And they're, they're also, like the Israelites, newcomers to the land. They actually came out of Greece. And they started to make um, posts all around the Mediterranean. And they're a fishing tribe that will battle and fight inland. And then they go right back to their boats in the sea. They're like pre-Viking Vikings. All they really want is their seashore villages. And then they go in and steal stuff inland. And then they come back to their villages. And they had villages all around the eastern Mediterranean. Right? So they're the ones that are left. But like Israel, they, are, they came in and pushed Canaanites out to get their territory. So you have this group of people that are going to be the chief enemies of Israel. They're a new spiritual force. They bring their own gods with them. And those gods look a heck of a lot like the Greek gods in the Greek pantheon, right? So the next chapter we're going to get to, thank you for burling through like a pretty big night tonight, getting through three chapters. Next chapter we get to is Samson. And like you get through the book of Judges so that you can get to Samson. Like it's a great story, great imagery, great idioms for Christ that are in Samson. And we'll pull those out and we'll tease those out, but I can't wait to get to it. I've been itching for it. Um, and we just nailed six judges tonight out of the 12, and Samson will be our 12th judge. Pretty cool, huh? Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for tonight. Um, And Lord, as we break up into groups to pray together, Lord, help us to just give our concerns to you and hand them over. Uh, They are yours to have. Lord, it is not always uh, um, inspiring to watch Israel decay, um, but it is inspiring to know that you're preparing us for a larger narrative and a larger story. It's hard to go through these things in life, Lord, but we do and we can hold on to the hope that you are preparing us for other things in our life and other victories to be had. So Lord, help us to endure our stress, our struggles in such a way that we know that you're preparing us for your work. Sometimes it takes tough circumstances to make tough warriors. So Lord, help us to know and trust in you that you are on your throne, you are mighty, and you are good. And Lord, help us just, it doesn't matter if there's a few of us, Lord, if we each walk out of here today and represent you with our mouths and our actions, Lord, we know you're going to work through that. We know you're going to do things because you've promised that you would. So Lord, we know you are mighty uh, to save and that you have a heart that not one person should be lost and that everyone we know is somebody you want and desire in your kingdom. So, Lord, help us to lovingly and truthfully share that with people. Lord, help us to tolerate no Ephraimites. Uh, Lord, we just don't need that kind of division and that kind of selfishness. It's just so destructive. So, Lord, help us to, A, not be an Ephraimite, um, but, Lord, also to just truthfully and and be happy to walk away from those people. Um, And, Lord, if they threaten to do things, Lord, we don't need them in, in the fellowship. You don't need them to do your work. Um, So, Lord, help us to just serve you and to not worry about the credit or who gets it. Lord, we thank you for Jephthah. We thank you for the sacrifice of a young girl to obey her father um, and to do it in such a way that she honors you for the rest of her life. 
Lord, we love how that story comes out and how you use her. Um, and Lord, we, we know that you are a good God and that you are preparing and putting people in the right place for the right work at the right time. And thank you for doing that. And we just, uh, though we're not doing a women's retreat into the mountains, Lord, help us to just for a moment know what a sacrifice it is for a young lady to give her life to the Lord and, and how you have honored her for all of time in your holy word and you've lifted that character up. Uh, Lord, we just pray for um, our weeks and where we're headed and we pray for each person here. Bless us, be with us, go before us and cover our backs, Lord, and go with us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.